Welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU devotionals and forums specially curated to accompany your weekly Come Follow Me studies. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. This devotional address, entitled Fear Not, was given on September 12th of 2017 by Kevin J. Worthen, then the president of Brigham Young University, and his wife, Peggy S. Worthen. Welcome to Fall Semester 2017. I hope you have had I hope you have a wonderful experience this year at BYU. I remember my first semester here as a student. I was thrilled at the thought that I was finally going to further my education. But at the same time, I have to admit I was somewhat anxious. The prospect of being a student at BYU was daunting. I was a non-traditional student returning to school when our youngest child was in kindergarten, as has been previously mentioned. I remember looking at the syllabus of each class and wondering if I could do everything that was required. I had chosen English as a major and was looking forward to attending all of the classes. I hoped I could keep up. I say I was looking forward to attending all of the classes. That is mostly true. But there was one exception. Intermediate Algebra. Algebra and I have a dubious history. Algebra was a required course in in junior high and high school, and I learned quickly that algebra was not one of my strong points. I did manage, however, to pass those pre-college algebra classes, mainly by doing extra assignments given to me by sympathetic algebra teachers. So knowing what I knew about my history with algebra, and knowing that I would have to take an intermediate algebra class in order to graduate from BYU, I did the only thing I could think of. I procrastinated. (laughs) The problem with procrastination is that whatever you choose to procrastinate never seems to go away. It looms large. The time finally came when I could procrastinate no longer. It was the last semester of my senior year the proverbial eleventh hour. I finally registered for the algebra class, attended the first day of class, and immediately knew I was in over my head. My friend Mary, who is a mathematical whiz, could sense my panic. She suggested that I drop the class, register for the independent study algebra course, and she would tutor me. I was so grateful to her. That was the beginning of what my family calls the year that mom took algebra. (laughs) It consumed a lot of my time. Passing my algebra class became a family project. Not only did I have the help of my friend Mary, who tutored me, but I also had Kevin's help and the help of my two sons. They spent hours helping me with my homework. They truly endured this experience with me. When I I wasn't working on my homework, it seemed like I was expressing my discontent to anyone who would listen. In other words, I complained a lot. I remember complaining to my mother about the fact that I was an English major and I didn't understand why I even had to take algebra. In a very reassuring, motherly way, she said, Peggy, you never know when you're going to need algebra. I'm sure she thought this was good counsel, but I was 43 years old and had somehow managed to get by without algebra 
up to that point in my life. I suppose one never knows when the ability to solve a quadratic equation will come in handy. But to this day, I'm still waiting for that moment to arrive. <laughs> the day I had anxiously anticipated finally arrived. It was time to take the final exam. In order to pass the class, I needed to pass the final. I felt I was prepared. I sat down, took the get test, and guess what? I failed. <laughs> I failed the test by one point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one miserable point. As you can imagine, I was not very happy. The only thing I could think of doing besides crying at that time was go directly to the counseling office at BYU. The counselor I met with was very patient while I explained my great frustration that I had failed by one point. I told the counselor that I didn't want to take the test again and that I felt like I shouldn't have to, especially since the grade I received wouldn't even affect my GPA. I believed I had a valid, valid argument. The counselor suggested wisely that I wait a week and retake the test, and if I didn't pass, then we could possibly discuss other alternatives. The last thing I wanted to do at that point was to retake the test. I just wanted the counselor to tell me that I was right. I left the counseling office determined I was not going to take the exam again. Of course, everyone who had suffered through this experience with me naturally wanted to know how I had done on the exam. I'm sure that they didn't want to go through this experience with me again either. They were very sympathetic when I told them I had failed and that I wasn't going to retake it. I felt that they would support me in my decision. That's what I thought anyway. However, when I told my friend Christy what had happened and about my resolve not to take the test again, instead of saying something like, oh, I don't blame you, she said something that stopped me in my tracks. Her response was, you know, that's not what you're going to do. You need to take, retake that test. That was the last thing I wanted to hear. But at that ex exasperating moment, I knew she was right. So much to my chagrin, I spent the next week studying. Apprehensively, I took the exam again. And guess what? I passed. I not only passed, but I passed with points to spare. And there was much rejoicing in the Worthen household. <laughs> now, when I think about my ordeal with algebra, I am grateful I had the experience, even though it was, at times, very unpleasant and difficult. It was definitely a time for, of growth for me. Although I didn't think the algebra course was an important part of my English degree, it was an important part of my education. It was a personal victory for me. I was ready to quit after I failed, and I felt justified in doing so. But after a friendly nudge, I decided to give it one more try. And although I didn't master algebra, I was able to achieve success on the second try. I now look back, and now as I look back on the experience, I would have regretted quitting, and I know that the regret I would have felt if I had quit would be worse than any discomfort or frustration I may have experienced while trying to learn algebra. President Hinckley, who knew the importance of both an education and not quitting, gave this counsel. 
I hope you will look upon the educational opportunity that you have as a great blessing. I know it is a grind. I know it is difficult. I know you get discouraged at times. I know you, will, you wonder why you are doing it at times. But keep on, keep hammering away, and keep learning. You will never regret it as long as you live, but will count it a great blessing. President Hinckley also stated, We have a mandate from the Lord to educate our minds and our hearts and our hands. The Lord has said, Teach ye diligently of things both in heaven and in the earth, and under the earth, things which have been, things which are, things which must shortly come to pass, things which are at home, things which are abroad, the wars and the perplexities of the nations, and the judgments which are on the land, and the knowledge also of countries and of kingdoms, that ye may be prepared in all things. You as students of BYU are here to learn and to obtain an education. You have all heeded the mandate that President Hinckley spoke of. You are all obeying the commandment given in the Doctrine and Covenants that tells us we must seek learning even by study and also by faith. There will be times when you may become discouraged while striving to obtain your education. When those times come, please remember that what you are doing is praiseworthy. You are seeking to improve yourselves as well as the Kingdom of God. In an address given at a recent women's conference, Stephen C. Harper provided this helpful insight about seeking learning. Seeking is a long, patient, persistent process that includes internalizing the best books, including the scriptures, where we learn not only the most important facts but the most valid meanings and values to give to the facts. Seeking is hard work. It is not for the weak-willed or faint of heart nor for the intellectually or spiritually lazy, but it will sustain faith in a world intent on destroying it. Seekers are wanted. We are all commanded to be seekers. My hope for you this year is that you will be diligent seekers, that you will not give up even when facing algebra-like challenges. I promise that as you do so, your lives will be happier now and in the future. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. It's a joy to join with Peggy in welcoming you to another school year. You're a wonderful sight, and this campus takes on new energy as you arrive here, and we're grateful for that. My message today focuses, focuses on one of the most oft-repeated, and yet I believe the most oft-overlooked and ignored and maybe violated commandments. By my count, this commandment is repeated 78 times in the scriptures. The commandment was the first thing spoken by the angels who announced Christ's birth to the shepherds outside Bethlehem. It was also the first thing spoken by the angels who announced Christ's resurrection to the women at the empty tomb. The commandment was conveyed by the angels who informed Mary and Joseph about their roles in the Savior's mortal ministry. And it was part of the message of the angel who appeared to Zacharias to reveal the upcoming birth of John the Baptist. The commandment is repeated in at least two of our LDS hymns. But it's a commandment found so frequently in the scriptures that we may not recognize its, prof its profound importance, especially for the times in which we live and the stage of life in which you, as students, find yourselves. The commandment is a simple two-word injunction. 
fear not. Two words, easy to remember, but especially profound for us. Now, some may question whether the directive to fear not is actually a commandment. True, it's not preceded by the familiar thou shalt not, and it was not written on stone tablets, but it is clearly an imperative repeated often enough by divinely authorized sources, including at least 10 times by the Savior himself, that it certainly seems to me like a commandment. More importantly, like all commandments, adherence to this two-word injunction will make our mortal journey both more productive and more joyful. Now, this is not a new topic. It's been preached over this pulpit as well as the pulpit in the conference center. But I believe it is one that is of particular relevance as we begin a new school year with all of its challenges in a world that seems increasingly full of fears. I firmly believe that if we increase our compliance with this important commandment, the coming year and the endless years that succeed it will be better. With that belief in mind, let me first explore the meaning of this sometimes misunderstood commandment and then describe four things we can do to increase our ability to comply with its principles. To understand the commandment to fear not, we first have to understand what we mean by fear. What exactly are we supposed to avoid? According to one source, fear is a feeling induced by perceived danger or threat that ultimately leads to a change in behavior. As this broad definition suggests, not all fear is bad. Were it not for this emotion, we would not flee from or avoid things that would actually harm us. The feeling that might arise when we hear the signature tail warning of a rattlesnake is one we should not ignore. It keeps us safe. Similarly, the scriptures indicate that we are to fear the Lord. Surely we should not avoid this kind of fear. But as Elder David A. Bednar once explained, this righteous fear is much different from the fear we are commanded to avoid. Righteous fear is instead a deep feeling of reverence, respect, and awe for the Lord Jesus Christ, a feeling which induces obedience to his commandments and anticipation of the final judgment and justice at his hand. This kind of godly fear dispels mortal fears and thus aids in our compliance with the commandment to fear not. So if fear of real danger and fear of God are not covered by this commandment, just what is it that we are commanded to avoid? The fear the scriptural injunction directs us to suppress falls into the category of what some psychologists call irrational fear or fear of the unknown, a fear of future events that will not likely occur. Using the letters of the term itself, some refer to this as false evidence appearing real, fear. It is this false evidence appearing real type of fear that Satan seeks to induce in us and which the Lord commands us to avoid. It's a kind of fear that is debilitating, sometimes paralyzing, and almost always soul and energy sapping. For some, this kind of fear takes the form of thoughts that you are not good enough to succeed here at BYU. For others, that you do not belong here because you are different from those around you. For some, it is a fear that you will never find an eternal companion. For others, that the future appears so ominous and dangerous that marriage and a family seem too risky. And for far too many, this fear comes in the form of the false belief that you are not acceptable to God, that you are so flawed because of past mistakes or current inadequacies that you are beyond the reach of the refining and redeeming power of Jesus Christ. When any of these false thoughts appears to be real to you, 
When such satanic lies cause you to lose hope in the future and maybe even in the present, please remember that God has repeatedly commanded us to fear not. And that commandment falls clearly within the ambit of Nephi's well-known and eternally true observation that the Lord giveth no commandments unto the children of men, save he shall prepare a way for them that they may accomplish the, th the thing which he commandeth them. Now, with that in mind, let me suggest four things we can do in such trying times to comply with the commandment to fear not. The first is to recognize and remember that this kind of fear comes not of God, but from Satan, the adversary of truth and righteousness. Indeed, as President Hinckley taught, fear is the antithesis, the complete opposite of faith. This is evident from the scriptures themselves. The scriptures define faith as the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, which are true. It is a real manifestation of what is really true. The polar opposite of that would seem to be the lack of substance or evidence of things that are false, or false evidence appearing real fear. We need to recognize that the feeling of despair and hopelessness that characterizes irrational fear is a tool of the adversary. Indeed, it is one of his primary tools. I am convinced that just as we have articles of faith, Satan and his minions must have articles of fear to aid them in their work. They might read something like, we believe that the first principles of despair and damnation are doubt God, doubt yourself, and doubt others. And most of all, be afraid, be very afraid of the future. <laughs> I am certain the adversary fully understands that fear and faith cannot coexist together. If we fail to understand that truth, we are at a comparative disadvantage. On the other hand, if we remember that simple fact, in the moments when we are gripped by irrational fear, we will not only be able to recognize the true source of what President Hinckley called the gnawing, destructive element of fear, we will also understand the cure for those debilitating feelings. As both President Russell M. Nelson and Elder Bednar have reminded us, faith is the antidote to fear. If we want to decrease the amount of fear in our lives, we need to increase the amount of faith in our lives. But it's not faith in the abstract that is the antidote to such fear. It is, as the fourth article of faith makes clear, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we want to decrease the amount of irrational fear in our lives, we need to increase our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when fear threatens to overwhelm us, we should focus less on those fears and more on increasing our faith in Him who admonishes us to look unto him in every thought, doubt not, fear not. And how do we do that? By getting to know the Savior better. The more we know Christ, the more we will trust and love him, and the more faith we will have in him. In that regard, I urge each of you as the new school year begins to spend time on a daily basis getting to know him through daily scripture study and prayer. These simple acts of daily scripture study and prayer, especially with the intent to know the Savior better, will do more than almost anything else to strengthen your faith in Him, which in turn will decrease the amount of irrational fear in your life, no matter the particular cause of that fear. So set, a time, set aside time on a daily basis, in the morning, in the evening, to strengthen your faith in Christ through daily scripture study and prayer. Second. We can increase the amount of faith and decrease the amount of fear in our lives by serving others more. As the lectures on faith indicate, faith is a principle of action. 
It grows and operates in our lives only when we are willing to exercise our agency in an active way. If we want to increase our faith in a way that dispels our fears, we need to act. And often the best way to act is to serve others. Irrational fear causes us to focus on ourselves, on our own inadequacies, our own inability, inability to control things. When we focus on others and what we can do to help them, fear fades. This is just one way in which, as the scriptures teach us, perfect love casteth out all fear. I learned this in a powerful way while serving as a missionary in Mexico. In the early part of my mission, I was hesitant to speak, both because I am by nature an introvert and because my Spanish was not very good. I greatly feared that I would be embarrassed. I was focused on myself. One day as I walked down the street, I suddenly had a feeling overcome me that I can only credit to the Holy Ghost. It was a clear feeling that all of the people I saw bustling about me that day were literally my brothers and sisters, that all of them were sons and daughters of my and their heavenly parents. Without any conscious effort on my part, I felt overwhelming love for each person that I saw. At that moment, I felt a great desire to speak to them. I was anxious to share with them words that would help me see their divine destiny, even if the words were not in perfect Spanish. I suddenly found that I cared more about them and their well-being than my potential embarrassment. My fear of being embarrassed disappeared and was replaced by an almost consuming love for those people. And as I shifted from my focus, as I shifted my focus from me and my inadequacies to others and their needs, my fear was cast out by the love that I felt. Similarly, when you find yourself overcome by fear, I urge you to look for others who need your help. Focus on what you can do for them, on what they need. If you do this, I promise your fears will decrease because your love for God and His children will increase. And as President Uchtdorf recently reminded us, perfect love is also a divinely appointed antidote to fear. Third. We can increase the amount of faith in our lives if we understand that, as Elder Neil L. Anderson once observed, faith is not only a feeling, it is a decision. Faith, he said, is a choice. There will be repeated times during this semester and during the rest of your lives when you will have a choice whether to be governed by faith or by fear. I urge you to be quick to recognize when that is the choice you face because it is not always immediately apparent. If you are more aware of the fact that you are making a choice between faith and fear, you will more often make the right choice. If you don't pause to recognize that fact, fear may overcome you without you even realizing it. Let me illustrate with an example. A number of years ago, I had an assignment on campus that involved athletics. In that role, I was invited to attend a banquet, banquet for the women student-athletes at which Sister Sherry Dew was the speaker. Any of you who have heard Sister Dew speak would understand how excited I was to be invited. She is a gifted speaker, a wonderful gospel scholar and speaker, and I, was, I very much look forward to hearing from her. Unfortunately, at the last minute, a conflict arose, and much to my disappointment, I was not able to attend. As you can imagine, then, I was especially excited when I was invited to the exact same event the next year and learned that one of the speakers was again to be Sherry Dew. This time, I was able to attend. I was particularly thrilled when Sister Dew started off her remarks by saying she was going to begin by telling the same story she had told the year before. 
sort of allowing me to catch up. I was pleasantly surprised, thinking maybe she was doing this just for my sake. However, she quickly made clear that while she was going to tell the same story she told the previous year, this year she was telling it to make an entirely different point from the one she had made before. Sister Dew explained that she began her remarks the prior year by telling the women student-athletes how thrilled she was to be invited to speak because she had long wanted to be a part of BYU athletics. She explained by saying something to the effect, you will remember that I told you when I arrived at BYU, I felt like I was the most ill-prepared, socially awkward freshman who had ever set foot on this campus. I told you then that I was from a very small town in Kansas, a town much smaller than the student population of BYU, and I felt completely overwhelmed, wondering if I could ever or would ever fit in. But, she said, there was one thing I thought might provide an entry into the BYU community, and that was basketball. Sister Dew said, I had played basketball in high school in Kansas, and quite frankly, I thought I was pretty good. So I decided I would try out for the women's basketball team. I learned all I could about the team, who the coach was, who had left the team, who was returning, and when the tryouts were to be held. You'll recall, Sister Dew said, that I told you last year how I summoned up all my courage and went to the appointed gym in the Richards Building where tryouts were to be held. And wanting to make sure I maximized my chances, I arrived early. You will also remember, she said, how I told you that I opened the door to the gym with some confidence, and then I watched the girls who were playing there, and I thought to myself, wow, they're really good. You'll remember, Sister Dew said, how I told you that I closed the door and then spent the next 45 minutes walking up and down the hallways of the Richards Building, trying to muster up enough courage to go back for the tryouts, but that I finally gave up and returned to my dorm room without making the effort to try out. I told you that story last year, Sister Dew said, so that you would understand that I truly meant it when I told you that I was thrilled more than you knew that I had been asked to speak to the women student-athletes at BYU and to be made an honorary member of that group. I wanted you to know that it really was the fulfillment of a lifelong dream. Then Sister Dew said, but I'm telling you this same story this year for a much different purpose because of what happened immediately after I spoke last year. After I spoke last year, she said, Sister Elaine Michaelis came to the podium. Now, many of you here will know Sister Michaelis. She's one of the legendary figures in BYU athletics. She worked in the athletics department for more than 40 years, serving as women's athletic director for much of that time. She was such an impactful and successful women's volleyball coach that many of you will know that the volleyball court in the Smithfield House is named for her. During her coaching career at BYU, Elaine Michaelis at one time or another coached every single women's sport. Now, with that background, Sister Dew then said, when Sister Michaelis spoke after me last year, she engaged me in a conversation from the podium. Sister Michaelis first said, Sherry, is that story true? Sister Dew was a little taken aback and said, of course it's true. Sister Michaelis then responded, do you know who the coach of the women's basketball team was the year you were a freshman? Yes, I do, Sister Dew responded. It was you. I knew everything about the team that year. Then said Sister Dew, Sister Michaelis said, I should tell you something, Sherry. In all my many years of coaching and of all the teams that I coached, there was only one year and one team that did not have a full roster. It was the women's basketball team that year. We were one player short. Sister Dew then 
pretending to stab herself in the heart, said, it would not have hurt any more to be stabbed in the heart than to have heard those words. There was a place for me on that team. God had prepared a way for me to fit in and had given me inspiration as to what I should do, and I let my fears keep me from that blessing. Now, Sister Dew's life turned out okay. We don't need to worry about her. <laughs> and the women's basketball team survived without her as well. But that's just evidence that God truly can make all things, including our own mistakes, work together for our good if we will love and trust Him. But He will also bless us in the interim, in the short run, and in the long run, if our choices are directed by our faith in Him rather than our fears about ourselves. I urge you to be alert to the times in which we must choose between fear and faith. Those times confront us more often than we usually recognize. Fourth and finally, even if we recognize that faith is a choice and that we are facing that choice, we may doubt our ability to make that choice, especially in pressure situations. Too many of us too often worry whether we are capable of choosing faith when it really counts. If that is a concern, I urge you to recognize that you already exercised incredible faith in Christ at a most critical juncture in your eternal journey. You're all familiar with the scene. We were gathered together in a grand council where our Father in Heaven described His plan for us to become like Him. Critical to that plan was the role of a Savior, someone who would live His life and give His life in a perfect way, thereby allowing Him to perform an atoning sacrifice which would enable us to gain the experience we needed to have in this fallen world without being condemned by the inevitable mistakes we would make. But there was also another plan presented, one put forth by Lucifer. A war was waged between the adherents of these two plans. And as recorded in the book of Revelation, we were on the winning side. It was not a physical war, but rather a war of words, a war of concepts, a war in which faith was our main weapon. Listen to how we prevailed as described in the book of Revelation chapter 12. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. It was the strength of our testimonies in Christ that allowed us to overcome Satan. It was our faith in him. Think about it. At that time, the blood of the Lamb had not yet been shed. The Atonement had not yet been performed. All we had was the promise of our Heavenly Father and Christ that Jesus would perform His role perfectly. It all rose or fell on that. And we had the choice whether we would believe in that promise in those circumstances. All we had was our faith in Him. But in that critical time, we all chose to be governed by faith and not fear. If we sometimes doubt whether we really believe and whether we can act on that belief when it most counts, we can be emboldened by the reassuring fact that we believed before, and we believed with such certainty that the forces of darkness were compelled to flee from our presence. In your moments of doubt, despair, and fear, when you wonder if you can choose faith, remember you already made that choice once when faced with that same decision in the pre-Earth life. As Elder Robert D. Hales once noted, the blessings we enjoy now are because we made the choice to follow the Savior before this life. To everyone hearing these words, he said, whoever you are and whatever your past may be, remember this. 
it is not too late to make that same choice again and follow him. My dear brothers and sisters, fear not. Whatever the circumstances you find yourself in, know with assurance that you can succeed. You are more capable, more talented, and more faith-filled than you realize. More importantly, you are more loved by God than you realize. God lives. He is our Heavenly Father. He has placed you on earth at this time and in this place because he knows you can succeed and that you can help others succeed in this particular setting. May the heavens open to give you glimpses of that truth and that destiny is my prayer as we begin this new semester. And I ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Come Follow Me podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.